Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and it is time for the first Stacks Book Club discussion of the year. We are discussing Nella Larson's 1929 novel, Passing, and we're joined again by Cree Miles, the creative force behind Penguin Random House's Always Black platform. We talk today about the history of Passing, the movie adaptation, and of course, that ending. There are all kinds of spoilers on today's episode, so please read the book first and come back and listen. If you want an opportunity to discuss Passing in even more detail with me and a whole bunch of other folks, consider joining the Stacks Pack on Patreon. Every month, we do a virtual book club chat on the Stacks Book Club pick, and members of the Stacks Pack also get bonus episodes of the show, discounts on merch, and until the end of January 2022, the Stacks exclusive reading tracker. Head to patreon.com slash the Stacks to join us. I also want to give a quick shout out to our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Brittany Simmons, Anamika Gavain, Emily Sarbacker, Jordan Grazzo, Monique Letourneau Patel. Anna McNobola, Philip Van Devanter, Sarah Guy, Connie Raza, and Lucia LeBlanc. The Stacks is an independent podcast, which means without the support of listeners like everyone I just named and the rest of the Stacks pack, there would be no The Stacks. So please join us over on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Stacks. Before we get to the episode, I just want to say, make sure to listen all the way to the end of today's episode to find out what our book club pick for February will be. Okay. Now it's time for our conversation with many spoilers about Passing by Nella Larson with our guest, Cree Miles. All right, everybody. I am back for our first book club episode of the year. It is Passing by Nella Larson. We are joined again by the wonderful, talented, amazing, everyone's favorite laugher, Cree Miles. Cree, welcome back. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here. And now I feel self-conscious about my laugh. Oh, no. So Everyone loved it. I I'm got, not laughing. I got more. Good luck. <laughs> I got I got more messages about your laugh than I ever have gotten about any podcast ever. But how many people loved it? So please laugh freely. Make the show better. 
Okay, I just told Kree I'm so bad at recapping the book at the start of these episodes. So I have made, set an intention to do that in 2022. So the book is Passing by Nella Larson. It was written in 1929. Yes, there will be spoilers today on this episode. If you have not read the book, you're going to want to read it. It's like 150 pages and we're going to talk about the very intense ending. So don't be that person who ruins the book for yourself. Just read it. But that being said, <laughs> here's the quick summary. Irene Claire. Two women, friends from childhood, they run into each other at the Drayton Hotel or something. Yeah. <laughs> and they're, they're having tea and smoking cigarettes and they spot each other. Irene is like, I don't know that white woman. And Claire is like, I know you. You're Irene. Turns out Claire is not white. She's black. She's passing. But Irene is also very fair. And then the whole book goes from there. It's about passing in the 1920s, two friends tensions, sexual tensions, jealousy tensions, social tensions. <laughs> this shit is tense, okay? Economic tensions. Economic tensions, spousal tensions, Ooh. racial tensions. Oh. It's all the tensions except for the tension band you use at your at-home workout. Thank you. To grow those glutes, <laughs> period. Different <laughs> tensions. Anyways, okay, that's my that's my recap. We're going to get into everything. We always start here. Cree, what did you think of the book? It's brilliant. Prior to reading this book, I didn't know that passing was its own like subgenre of literature. Mm. There are so many pieces of fiction written about passing because it was just like an epidemic um, <laughs> of sorts. <laughs> that word is triggering nowadays. Yeah. Um, but... I haven't read any of the other ones, but the people that I've talked to who have read them is like, there's a reason that passing is the classic. Like yeah. Nella gave us some timeless stuff in here. So I absolutely like it's literally my favorite kind of book. Literally. What, what does that mean? What is your favorite kind of book about this? I love a book that takes me back a period piece. Okay. Love that. Um, and I love when I can still access it, even though it's a period mm -hmm. piece. Mm -hmm. And so like, I have all of these tabs and I was going through them in preparation for this conversation, but so many of them were just around language because in 1929, they just wrote differently. And mm -hmm. so the words and the sentence structures and the phrases, um, and just, I love a period piece that centers glamor. Mm -hmm. And like, this was just, it was the Harlem Renaissance. Like yeah. it doesn't even get like, more black bougie America than that. Mm -hmm, so I, mm -hmm. I loved all of that so much. Okay. Love this. So glad you loved it. I obviously love this book as well. Um, I did not obviously, but I do love this book. <laughs> I've read it now twice. So I read it last year for the first time in anticipation of the movie that I never watched. And then I read it again in anticipation of this conversation. And then I watched the movie. So we're yeah. going to talk about the movie also, but we'll save that for a little bit later. Okay. As I mentioned, there's a lot of tension in this book which I love. I, I, I talk so much about how I don't like fiction because I think sometimes what happens in fiction is the author is trying to do a lot of things and they forget to do the thing that the audience needs, which is like tell a story, give us some like conflict, give us some tension, create, create that energy within the piece. Yeah. Not Nella Larson. She did not forget that. She put it on heavy, thick, there are, I, I, people also know this about me. I love a scene. I love a scene. Yeah. I will sit through a description of a tablecloth for 60 pages. If at the end there is a dinner scene, 
with a family. I did not know that about you. I love this. I love a scene. And there (laughs) are so many scenes in this book. There's obviously the first scene where they meet, where you're like, what's happening? This is very intense and strange. There's obviously the scene when we meet John Bellew. There's the scene where we get Hugh, the author. I mean, that's a fucking scene. Holy shit. There's obviously the teapot breaking scene. And then there's the ending scene. Like, and this book is like 130 pages. Like there's so much juice and it's so short. The other thing that I love is what you mentioned. It's so readable. The writing is like so accessible and unpretentious. And yet it does have like a style to it that is not our contemporary literature. But it's interesting because you're like, oh, it's a period piece. And it is for us, but it was contemporary literature at the time. Like she was writing about the book takes place in 1927 and she wrote it in 1929. Like it was that she was like writing and it. just given yeah. her background right like she was right. low-key high-key writing what she knew i that's so true tracy anytime yeah. we're experiencing a period piece it was contemporary at some point have you seen that meme about somebody doing the dance to mozart's duh, duh, oh, duh. No. and they're doing <laughs> and they're like this is what they were all doing in 1790 when mozart dropped this joint i was like that's period. really funny it's true that's really funny. <laughs> well some i think some can some older books are period pieces like they're like Shakespeare wrote about Julius Caesar and like that would have been a contemporary or that would have been a period piece at the time but then like this is this was the contemporary literature of the time which I think is just really interesting and I want to get into that a little bit about like what she was writing about in the time but okay we have to start here were you team Claire or team Irene Claire, all day, every day, period. What's that about? Shouldn't we hate Claire? Shouldn't we be like, you're a race traitor? You're bad. Okay. Well, like, so when I was going through and like revisiting, I realized a part of this that really I was kind of obsessed with is Claire. It was like, we have to come to terms with as if we really want black people to be liberated and be able to just exist as full humans, that means that we have to reserve the right for some black people to be okay with like their blackness just being a side part of their identity instead mm. of the int- like the main part of it. And Claire was just like happened to be black, but also much preferred the finer things in life by any means necessary. And if we're really about liberating everybody, that kind of has to be okay. Yeah, no. So I, I have this later for the conversation. We should talk about it now. One of the things that I find like really interesting is that Irene clearly has this like sense of ownership about blackness and what is black and who is black. And like, it's a very, you know, she's she's there's a policing of blackness, if you will. Right. And yeah. like she's earned and like part of it. I mean, this is I was trying to like think about it. Like, why is she so uptight? Why does she care so much, especially knowing that she has passed in social situations to like have access. Right. Like she's yeah. not dark skinned. She's not living this life of like total and complete oppression because of her skin color. She's doing the same shit when she wants to do it, but she's also married to a black dude who is presenting black and like, she's kind of like trafficking in both spaces. But I'm thinking like, she feels maybe that she's earned her status and like, it's not something that other people should get to play with. 
or whatever. Like she feels yeah. like she's like put in the time being a Negro and like <laughs> and like you're not gonna pass for white and then come hang out with me and my black and also like many white friends. Cause that's the other yeah. thing. She's like friends yeah. with white people. Yeah. But that made me think of like, isn't Claire claiming blackness just as much her right and experience as it is Irene's or Brian's or Gertrude or whoever else in this book or any of us. Like, I think that there's this sense when it comes to passing, the practice of passing, that a lot of Black people did it because they didn't want to be Black or didn't like being Black. Yeah. And, and I just don't it know if it's that. It was never about that. It was never about that. Yeah. I mean, everybody has, probably most people have this internalized, um, like, whiteness in them, like white is right, that if they don't unpack will manifest because um, white supremacy is the water, right? It's not in right. the water. So I, I mean, in a lot of ways, I think so people are subconsciously drawn to things that present more whiter. So then we we get into like the issues of colorism and texturism and blah, blah, blah. But I mean, all of that aside, people just wanted rights to things that they should have had rights to anyway right. like it's absolutely absurd that irene had to pass for white to go get some tea when right. it's 100 degrees outside exactly. so and i think it's obvious in as we like the development of claire's story in the book she didn't want to be white she just wanted to be rich rich and bougie, and bougie. Exactly. yeah she exactly. wanted to wear those dresses those gowns exactly. beautiful yeah. gowns yeah and so like it. Well, because also the history of passing, it started obviously, I mean, not this might not be obvious to people. I shouldn't say that. It started during the time of slavery. And it was a way that people, because here's the other thing. I, I never had thought about this until I read One Drop by Yaba Blay. But mm -hmm. I think that people, because of like depictions of slavery in movies and and in popular cultural culture in general, think that all slaves were black presenting. Right. And that like the field yeah. slaves were darker skinned and the house slaves were lighter skinned, but like my complexion. Right. Like yep. not mm -hmm. super duper fair. And I think what people forget is that because of the sexual violence and rapes that happened on plantations and because of the one drop rule, there were hundreds, thousands of slaves who were white presenting Today, you would look at them and you would think they were white because they were one eighth black, one sixteenth yep. black. And so the practice of passing started so that people could have their papers to be they would they were trying to be free blacks of color or free free slaves, free men of color, whatever that term was. Mm -hmm. And so it started in mm -hmm. slavery time to like try to get to their families. They were passing for white to get out of slavery. That's where this all started. Later, it became more of like a social thing that people did. And it became like sort of in vogue of like, oh, are they black? Are they white? But it started mm -hmm. in slavery. And I think it's really important for people to remember that a lot of slaves looked exactly like the white people that owned them. Yeah. And like, I don't think we talk about that enough. Like I was looking at these old pictures and I was like, that is a white baby. It was like a yeah. white, it was like a white slave, you know, fanning. And it was like, this child is one, one thirty second, you know? And yeah. like, that's like a great, great, that's like one black, great, great, great grandparent. So it's like real far. 
So I just want to throw that out there. I don't know what my point was, but I wanted to make a point. I mean, it, I mean, it definitely, it definitely speaks to the like absurdity of race Certainly. as a social construct. Certainly. Like, um, and I think that that is something that most people aren't aware of, of how obscure and random it can be. Because at the end of the day, especially when we're talking about like the roots of the issue, it was really just meant to serve. Um, as capital for rich white men. So um, if I can get you to be black so you, I can keep owning you, then that takes priority, which is just, it's wild. Right, right. I mean, a, an economic system, not anything other than that. A business, you know. A business, a business, exactly. A, bus- a money-making and, endeavor. And the rules would change depending on how they could benefit the people who were making them. Like that's that's just the bottom line. So right, it's right. ugh. Yeah. Anyways, so back to Claire. Claire is just, you know, we all know a Claire. We all know I look, all of the things that I underlined about Claire, I'm like, I would like to be she don't care. Yeah. It's like Claire is team Claire. Yeah. And it we feel like it's problematic, but maybe it just feels problematic because of how often we just don't see black women who do that for themselves. Yeah. Like Claire was like, I'm going to get mine by any means necessary. And I low-key feel like that should be celebrated. We've seen the Irenes a million times before, the woman who like sacrifices whatever convenience right. for the name of this big thing that maybe would low-key abandon her if it got too hard, which right. oftentimes also happens to black women. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's true. It's like, there um, we don't have good depictions of Claire. I don't Claire's even. Claire's a baddie. Yeah. Claire's a baddie. We love, we stand Claire. I love Claire. Claire is, we talked about this last time you were here, how much I love Gone with the Wind. And Claire is Scarlett O'Hara. She is that do whatever it takes for me and mine, get mine, wear a beautiful dress, be whatever I need to be in the moment. Okay. So here's another thing that I feel like I'm really excited to ask you about about the book because I I have not seen a ton of conversations about this when people talk about the book. But to me, it was very glaring, which is Mm -hmm. this like selfish versus selfless motherhood. Yeah, you're right. People don't talk. And because like we never met Claire's child. Yes. Um, And which is saying something. Which is, right, which is implied, right? I don't know if Nella had kids or not. I I, I was thinking about that as we were. But that's a really good question because a huge part of Irene's identity is obviously attached to the fact that she's a mom. And um, you would assume that would be anybody who's a mom's, like a portion of their identity. And um, we always just kind of get side-eyed when we aren't like, like wearing a pinafore and um, like baking biscuits, mothers, you know, Um, and like ambitiously wanting something else. So I really like, I fuck with Claire in all the ways, you know, like even her mothering, I'm like, I get it. Cause wow, this is, you know, I've raved about how much more balanced my life is now that Matt goes to daycare four days a week. Right. But there's definitely like stigma around that. I mean, there is. 
because there's so many depictions of Irene's in popular culture and not nearly enough depictions of Claire. Right. Like we just think that that's what being a mom is. And I think like obviously culturally, a lot of things have changed about women and their abilities to work and and lead and create and like not just be in the workforce, but be doing something like you're doing, like consulting for a major publishing firm on your own, like doing your own thing. Like that just wasn't a possibility before. So, of course, we don't have depictions of those types of things in the 1920s or 1970s in a lot of cases you know when women first started working it was like you work for a company no absolutely and like childcare, like they both have like these hired hands in their house right but it still is looking like the majority of child care is supposed to still fall on the mom right we need is... to talk about the child care oh my gosh what's her name what's her name it starts with z what was the woman's name Z. Z- Mm, wish I could remember. It's not going to come to me. I cannot. Yeah. I, um, you know, what's super interesting is after I watched the movie, I read, um, cause you know, Brandon Taylor is the vine and I am the branches. Zulina. I, Zulina. I found her. Zulina. Yes. <laughs> and he talked about how disappointed he was that like the movie didn't take an opportunity to give us a richer backstory on her. Like he felt mm. like that was a really missed moment. That was mm-hmm. interesting to me. Cause I didn't really think about it. Yeah. I mean, it's also like the line where John in the scene with John Bellew, Bellew, where he's like, he's like, Nig hates, hates him even more than I do. She won't even let us have a black housekeeper or whatever. And I'm like, I'm like, that is the greatest line in the entire book, because as a black person, of course, we're all sitting here being like, yeah, because they would know that bitch was trying to be white. Black, right. Like, we would call that out in a minute. Like, yeah, excuse yeah. me, sis. Oh, yeah. my God. Oh, John Bellew. I John. would love to talk about the satirical character that is John. But, and that whole scene. That whole scene. That, that was my favorite scene in the movie, it's, honestly. Yes, it, it is. It's it's. I think it's my favorite scene in the book as well. I think it's my favorite scene in the whole thing. It's just so... Okay, really, I, we have to talk about the movie slightly. Yeah, of course. Of course. So I like the movie. Yeah. But my biggest issue with the movie is that... Rebecca Hall, for whatever reason, somehow, I don't even know how she did it. She removed so much of the tension from the story to me. Yeah. Like, I don't like it's like a it's like these little switches. And the reason I wanted to bring it up is with this scene is that in the book, we slash Irene, we don't Mm -hmm. know if John knows that Claire is black or not. We don't know until after until later we find out later that he d- doesn't know but mm-hmm. remember she when he says nig she's like did he he must right. know did like, this nigga just yeah right yes and in the movie before he ever comes into the scene irene asks claire does your husband know and she's like oh no 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 so they've neutered that entire scene because now we know that he know doesn't know that she's black and so it's like there's no oh, ha ha ha, they're in this joke together. Irene is stressed out because she doesn't know what to do. Irene knows what to do in that scene. And, and they removed like, yeah. that other character. The other character, who was like Gertrude. Sitting, yeah. Right, which would have also offered another layer of tension because then Irene at least could have had somebody to play off of. Right. Like, okay, so you're sitting with two partners. So maybe like, we, I don't know, they were probably in cahoots, but like Gertrude, are we, what are we doing about this? You know? Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I just feel like 
because the other thing that I really like about the book is that I, I don't know if you found it this way, but I found Irene to be a super unreliable narrator. Yeah. Um, yeah. And because we're not in her perspective in the movie, like she's not telling us the story. She's not like uh, editorializing what's happening. We are just taking her experiences as truth. And so that yeah. removed a lot of the tension for me, too. And so while I thought it was beautiful and like I think the acting was good, I think Ruth Nega was like incredible. And Andre yeah, Holland yeah. was very good. And Tessa Thompson, I thought, was strong. But it's sort of a not very fun part. Um, <laughs> like, you have Ruth Nega, like, getting to be Claire. And then you have someone who has to, like, play Irene. It's, like, sort of a downer. Um, <laughs> couldn't be me. But, like, you know, it's a thankless part. But she was she was good in it. I just was, like, the, I, I got bored. And it wasn't, I thought, like, yeah. oh, it's because I knew what was going to happen. But I reread the book before knowing everything that was going to happen and was, like, still on the edge of my seat reading the book yeah but with yes. the movie i was sort of like okay get there get no there. the your the tension and just a lot of the all the people who i like have talked to who didn't read the book missed so much because mm. the internal dialogues that were happening and you're right the like how unreliable Irene is. Like, do we even ever get to the bottom of whether Ryan was actually even considering messing with Claire or not? Or was that just an invented thing in Irene's head? Um, it was, it would have been hard to follow if you hadn't read the right, book. Right. So and in the movie, like, right. that's really, like, there's a lack of subtlety in the movie. Like, in the yeah. movie, it's, they have a conversation about it. I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah, no. No, yeah. I think that I think the movie should it could have taken more time. Like, sure, the book is short, but like in order to capture all of the nuance that's happening within those relationships, I think they would um, Hall would have needed more time to build it out. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And also in the book, I don't know if you noticed how many times Irene is either says or just is described as like being in a rage, but <laughs> constant Irene is like a, is like furious. <laughs> The God, and I did not get Virgo. that at all. Yes, yes. I did not get that at all in the movie. Like, not once did I think this woman is an, in a rage. I thought she yeah, was like no. losing her shit, but I did not think like there was no fire for Irene. Yeah, and I feel like in the book that's what I liked most about Irene. Is I was like, oh, this woman is unstable, and she is becoming yeah. unhinged. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like this is very scary and like very intense. And yeah. in the movie, it was more like she was irritated that Claire was destroying or was like in she was irritated that Claire was inconveniencing her life. But in the book, she was in a rage that Claire would dare like do anything around yeah. her. And like that yeah. difference is huge to me when we're talking about comparing the book and, and the movie. Yeah. I wonder like. Like, are you sure that she was in a rage? Like, I like, I do, like, I do definitely think that she was unhinged, but I would, I do think it was like a more subtle unhinged. Yeah. But I do think it was too subtle in the movie, like in the beginning, like the opening scene where um, she just kind of says that like her husband couldn't pass and um, her kids are, oh, she was talking about how her children are dark because Claire was stressed that her daughter would have been dark. Right, and, right, right. There wasn't enough bite behind that right, for me. Right, right. Like, because then she she apologized late. Like she was like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be rude. But right, um right, right, right. I wasn't even sure that you were rude. Unless these are like 
1920 decorum things that we wouldn't know. I could see that. Yeah. And there is that line in the book. It's on page 49 in my copy. Uh, (laughs) Where Irene says, it was, Irene thought, unbelievable and astonishing that four people, this is in reference to the John Bellew scene, that four people Mm -hmm. could sit so unruffled, so ostensibly friendly, while they were in reality seething with anger, mortification, shame. And I think that like that is like sort of the crux of the entire entire book, right? Like that like – there's all this stuff going on underneath and really what's being presented on the outside is like a totally different story. And I think in the book, obviously Larson is able to explain that to us with words very directly. And I don't think that Rebecca Hall was able to fully get that duality of emotion and performance. I think, I think that Claire is able to do it. Yeah, I think yeah. Ruth Nega is able to do it. I don't know. Not only I don't think this is actually a Tessa Thompson thing. I think it's a directorial thing. I just mm-hmm. don't think that Rebecca Hall set up Irene's character to be able to do it because we lost her point of view and like her unreliableness. Like she kind of stripped that because she presented it as more of a neutral point of view. Obviously, yeah. obviously. Irene is still the lead and like it's still her story, but it's not presented through the lens of Irene. Right. Like so again, that tension is missing. And so I feel like we don't see it as much of like the the what's going on on the surface and then what's going on underneath. How do you think that's fixable? Like what could she have done differently? Because I mean, this text, again, as we've said, is excellent. So there had to have been a way to do it. I mean, I think the obvious choice, which might have been dumb, and I don't know that I would recommend it, would have been to like do like a voiceover thing. I thought about that. Yeah. And I, I thought yeah. about it while I was watching it and I'm not sure it's the right choice. And also, so I don't like know. adding like adding scenes that aren't in the book with like that would be like side co- sidebar conversation. Yeah. I mean, she added some text that wasn't in the book, like in the scene with Hugh, another scene that I love at the party in Harlem. There's the line. Yeah. There's like he, he says something and then about like, aren't we all passing or she says we're all mm-hmm. passing for something, aren't we? And that's not in the book, that line. Right. So she did add some like pretty intensely pointed language to the book to do a lot of signaling. And so maybe she could have done more of that since she was doing it anyways. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I kind of just want it to happen again. Like if somebody can do this again in 10 years, I feel like we could have a cleaner go around because it was a nice effort. And anytime I see a write up about the movie, people are always talking about the shadow as a character, blah, 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 mm. blah. So I'm always like wondering if that's where they spent the majority of their time. Like, like on the lighting. In- yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the black and white and like the lighting. No, I mean, I mean, so yeah. here's the thing you have, like if you cast two visibly obviously black people which I feel that they did I think that Ruth Negga and Tessa Thompson are are black Um, and even more Tessa Thompson I think she is black presenting a thousand percent I think you do have to pour a lot of time and energy into the lighting and the black and whiteness of the film because you have to make it somewhat believable but I also think that that was like a super duper choice in the film to cast black actresses because I think like that I do think that's one of the things she got right was casting obviously I mean I don't know maybe they're not here's the other thing I don't know if they're obviously black to white people 
that's always the always. question. Oh, it's like it's I was like trying question. to squint at Ruth Nega and being like, would I believe this is a white? I can't. Tell. I can I cannot. Dog, I was thinking about that every time because um, I just I don't know how white people experience race. I really right. so I don't know. Right. Because like for me, I get asked if I'm Indian from India all the time when my hair is straight. Really? Which I don't, I mean, who knows? I don't, I don't think that I look Indian. I also get asked like if I'm, you know, Haitian, which has like a lot of like, you know, native, yeah. you know, Creole, all of that. I get asked if I'm Ethiopian when my hair is straight, which, you know, oh my God. and like uh, Haitian and Ethiopian are also like part of the black diaspora, et cetera, et cetera. But like, it's just very interesting that white people cannot identify me as what I am as soon as I straighten my hair with no other changes, like no makeup, no costume, <laughs> no lighting. It's just like I had a flat iron today. Yeah. And so like ah. part of me is like maybe these actresses are appearing white to white audiences. But even if they're not, I think that the choice to cast visibly black actors, actresses for Black audiences is very mm-hmm. smart because it that adds the tension, right? Like we yeah. know you're black. Yeah, I love we that. We know yes. you're black. We are mm-hmm. with you. There's no question in any of our minds whether or not you are passing. We see what's going on the entire time, which I love as a choice. Yeah, it helped. Like it felt like we were centered in that way. Mm-hmm. I think like mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. the storytelling was for us. Um, and even I've said this before, like the act of passing, like because when I talked to Netflix about this, I was at my grandparents house mm-hmm. and my grandfather is like high yellow. OK. okay. And um, he like when I said what I was talking about, he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, great. Blah, blah, blah. Theodore used to do that every time when he had to go up to such and such because he didn't like to ride on the color train. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, OK, so um, this is just like it's been a forever thing. So it's and so maybe that's another reason why um, Hall decided not to give us as much backstory right. because she was kind of like, y'all already know what it is. Like, you know, like, so I'm not about to, like, hold your hand through this story. This is how passing looked. I don't know. Right. right. I a thousand percent agree with you and your family about about that. I mean, I think also, like, for most Black Americans, there is someone in your family or family adjacent who at some point was passing or knew a, someone passing. Like, yeah, it was super duper common and it was a thing. And like. I think that because it's not something that's talked about a lot openly, I think that this book has brought on a lot of like outside non-black people being like, wow, this is a thing. And it's like, right. like yeah, this is a thing. Yeah. Thanks um, to y'all. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember the first time you ever heard about or saw like a representation or passing in any way? Um, It was learning about my grandfather. Cause like, um, I asked him um, when I was a child what his father's name was because I he he talked I knew his mom he his mom had him when she was sixteen so they were closer in age so I knew my great grandmother for a while but I was like so what was your dad's name and he just like really quickly and shortly was like Theodore like his de- de- demeanor completely changed mm. um, and so when I asked 
my family about, like my mom, like, what's up with grandpa talking about his daddy? And she was like, I mean, his dad could pass. Mm. So he had like accidentally gotten this dark skinned girl pregnant. And mm. um, Theodore's family was like, well, I don't know what you think we're about to do, but Theodore is about to go be a doctor. And then like, he's going to be able to do, I'm not sure if his intent was to pass as white or if he was just trying to like upward mobility with like a woman who was educated and lighter skin or whatever absurdity. But um, he, his family was not about to um, own my grandfather or his um, mother. Mm, Interesting. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. It's crazy. Crazy. Yeah. My my first is with this is like I should have gone first. (laughs) (laughs) Mine is the movie Showboat, the movie musical. Do you know Showboat? No, who's in it? What are you talking about? I don't even know who's in it. You know the song Old Man River? Sing it. Oh, okay. I'm a terrible singer. Old Man River. Oh, yes. Yes. I do know that That song's from that musical. Anyways, there's a character in that musical who is like an actress everybody loves. And then it comes out. Spoiler alert. She's passing and she's like, you know, ruined. She's ruined. She's a cruise singer. But I remember watching it as a child and being like, wait, what's going on? And my mom being like, she's black. And I'm like, okay, but like, what's going on? (laughs) What's going on? (laughs) Like, I like had no idea. I'm pretty sure the actress was white, but I like don't I haven't watched the movie probably probably in 25 to 30 years. Um, maybe not. So that's 30. the premise of the movie. It's like one, it's like the major, there's like multiple, it's a musical. So there's like multiple plots going on, but like, that's the major like fallout. You know, the song can't help loving that man of mine. Fish got a swim. Yes. Yes. That is also yep, that's that's a jam. showboat. That's showboat. Oh my God. That's so, so, she, so like, I loves a that. white guy or maybe she loves a black guy. I can't, I literally can't remember. Oh, All I know is that I she was passing. She loved a broke nigga. She lived. It could have been all those things. I I actually should have like looked up the plot. All I remember is that she was passing, and I was confused. And then I was like, "Oh, okay." T. All right. Wow. Um, people are tripping on this boat. This boat is toxic. Damn. Like everybody's yeah. real pressed that she's black. Yeah. Oh yeah. my god, that's hilarious. I need yeah. to watch that now. It's great. It's a great. It's a great racist film. It's also like super fucking. <laughs> it's like. It's like a deep talk about problematic. Like, it, I feel like it makes Gone with the Wind look lovely. Gone with the Wind is chill. Like the re- it's just like not. I can't, I know it's bad. I don't even remember it, and I know it's bad. That's how bad it is. Anyways, okay, that we're gonna take a so quick funny. break, and we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last. Three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have 
considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay, we're back. So one of the things we have to talk about that I don't know that I'm equipped to talk about, but I want to try is before I ever read the book, I remember hearing people talk about how like it's not just passing about race. It's also passing with like sexuality. And there's like this queer element in the book. And I'm curious what you thought about that. If you had heard that before you'd read it or seen the movie, if you felt like it was in the movie, if that like I'm curious your thoughts. Um. So I heard that in reference to the movie okay, and like watched. And I really do think that Ruth especially did a masterful job of bringing in type of any like sexual tension. Mm-hmm. I didn't see it in the book, but as I'm not a member of the queer community, it could just be like my lens is foggy. So right. I don't like, I don't appreciate it in that way. Um, but It really mostly, like, if I'm saying it through my um, boring hetero lens, Irene just kind of felt like an insecure woman whose identity was too closely attached to her marriage. Interesting. Okay. So I think that I have a similar foggy lens, for sure. Yeah. Um, However... I did a little I did a little reading. I did a little digging. Um, there is yeah. a book by Deborah E. McDowell that came out in 1986. I believe it's just called Quicksand and Passing, which is which are the two Nella Larson novels. And she has written extensively. And one of the things that she says in this essay is that the idea of bringing a sexual attraction between two women to full expression was too dangerous of a move in 1929. So instead, Larson enveloped the subplot of Irene's developing if unnamed and unacknowledged desire for Claire in the safe and familiar plot of racial passing. And so like sort of in this way, the book itself is passing for something that it's not right. Like that. Oh, yeah. That Larson is like trying to sneak in this like 
woman desire for another woman. And one of the things that that made me think of is like, if that's true, if that's what Nella Larson was doing, it makes a lot more sense why we keep hearing about Irene's rage because there's this inner tension for her. It's not just about Claire being black and like trying to be white, but also wanting to kick it with the homies. It's also about her not wanting her back Mm. and like, Mm. and her realizing that like her whole shit is a sham. And like that makes the rage make a lot more sense. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's like this extra, it's like, not only are you trying to kick it with my friends and you're not even being real with who you are, but you're also not interested in me and I am interested in you and you're fucking my husband. Yeah. allegedly. Right. Uh, right. Is she But it's just like that tension and that's what drives the whole shit, right? Like that's what drives Irene. And when I read that and thinking about it through that lens, mm-hmm. I liked Irene a lot more. Okay. Yeah, that does make her much more dynamic as a character. Yeah. Um yeah. But it's so subtle that I I don't I didn't really pick up on it in the book. There was a few moments where I was like, "Okay, right, you're feeling you're feeling a little needy, right? Like Like, that's what it always felt." And unhinged was the perfect word for me, Tracy. I was just like, "And you know what? It really was because you know whenever anyone is in front of me acting unhinged, I'm like, I feel like you need to have sex. So Mm -hmm. this would be (laughs) this is full circle." I feel like and Brian tells her like sex is a joke like Brian could you be less of an asshole if you tried like could you just actually try a little bit to not tell your wife that her pussy ain't shit (laughs) and you want to fuck her friend like could you just try (laughs) look look I because that was that was the other part like not because we we talked about how Claire is coming and she wants to hang out with the homies and blah 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 but also it was made like like painfully clear that Claire was beautiful and Mm -hmm. charming. So not only Mm -hmm. is she coming to hang out with the homies, she's also taking up all of this space. Yeah. Everyone loves her more than Irene. Right. So I, and we've all been there. Oh, I've definitely been there where it's like, Oh, meet my friend. And then I'm like, Oh no, (laughs) unmeet my friend. (laughs) No, bro. Not with my competitive ass. I'm always, I'm always the Claire. You're not about to be more interesting than me. As I age though, I find that harder to achieve. It's true. It's true. I'm, as I like to say, I'm old and washed now. So. <laughs> right, exactly. I can't take up the space I used to. It's over for me. But it's true. I've had, I've had some occasions where I've brought someone in and I've been like, oh, nope, you're never coming back. Right. Thank no. you. <laughs> Here, is there an open window I can just but push then, you out of? Or? Oh my God. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, but then, Tracy, that makes perfect sense because. Um, if she was doing that, then yeah, Irene wouldn't want her to keep coming, but she right, keeps inviting right. her back. So then, yeah, sis is in love. Just say that, right. bro. What? Yeah, just, just say it. <laughs> what? But I just love this idea that like Nella Larson was trying to pass her her book about like a woman in love with another woman and a woman's desire for this racial thing. She's like, oh, people are fine talking about passing, like no big deal. But we can't talk about lesbians. We can't talk about lesbians. No, yeah. Not even close. Oh my God. Yeah. That's fun. That's refreshing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it made me appreciate the book even more. And like, you know, I'm sure there's much more scholarship about it, but I I reached out to a bunch of people smarter than me being like, Hey, what should I read about this? And everyone was like, Deborah E. McDowell. So that's where I went. Shout out to the people who helped. Okay. I think we should talk 
about the affair with Brian. Okay. Yeah. When I read the book the first time, this is going to say some terrible things about me. So please just know I have to- toxic traits myself. Same. I have toxic, entrenched toxic masculinity. <laughs> Same. It's going to be unpacked throughout this life. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, I, you know, recognizing is the first step. But so here's the deal. Brian, when I read the book the first time, I suspected that Brian was having an affair with Claire before it was ever suspected by Irene in the text. There was like an early moment where I was like, oh, she, she'd be dancing with him a lot. Yeah. At these parties. However, when it was then presented by Irene, like, I think he's in love with Claire. I was like, nah, sis, you're tripping. And I immediately was like, <laughs> what, Tracy? I immediately was like, I don't know. I feel like she's putting a lot on this. Do we really know that he's cheating? Like, I immediately went to defend Brian in like, the super grossest way. Again, I I mentioned I have some to- toxic traits. The second time I read it, I felt very clearly that Brian was cheating. And then watching the movie, Rebecca Hall and myself were both like, there is cheating happening. Rebecca wants you to know we're going to talk about it. So I feel strongly that Brian was cheating. That is super interesting because I Wait, we have to hold on. We have to tell people Cree and I are having a lot of child care issues. Cree's <laughs> oh, son hear the violin. Yes, it's so loud. Cree's son's violin lesson just started. So we will have some beautiful black background ambiance for the rest of this conversation. Please oh take God. this as an offering from the art gods. Amen. Shout out to Ethan. Shout out to Copyright. Mr. Jamie. Period. <laughs> the the baddest. Um, yes, I um that's super interesting because when I read it, I did not, I thought that Irene was tripping too, but I don't, I would like to think, and maybe I'm being a contrarian just because of what you just said. I would like to think that I didn't, I wasn't coming to Brian's defense. I just didn't think Claire was that shysty. Mm, interesting. So I, I also could have been some, some of my Claire love, but I definitely flipped on myself. <laughs> said oh my god this nigga ain't shit this nigga ain't shit and Irene's like this nigga ain't shit and you're like is he not (laughs) he's very stressed he really wanted to go to Brazil he really wanted to go to Brazil you made him make money to take care of these children Irene you made him stay in Harlem and have a horrible life throwing parties (laughs) oh my god that is so funny yeah um I do think that the way it was played in the movie, for sure, it looked obvious. Like when they were walking up the stairs and when Irene came down from the stairs that one time and the way they were looking at each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even as I just came to Claire's defense, I'm thinking like, but didn't I just say 20 minutes ago that Claire was about Claire? Yeah, and Claire Um, says that very clearly. And I think in the movie, there's that scene where they're like outside and Claire's like, Irene, dear, I'm sorry, but I'm going to do whatever I want and I don't care who I hurt. Yep. Yep. Or whatever. Yeah. Oh, I mean, this, you know, obviously it's always going to take me to Sula and like the forever conversation about like the demonizing of um, like an adulterous woman. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, if there's mm-hmm. another place that they belong in society, because I don't really think demon is the route. No. No, it's very, it is, I, I didn't, hadn't really thought about this as obviously in conversation with Sula, even though I think about it as conversation with the vanishing half. And when we did Sula on the show, Britt Bennett was our guest. So ah. they're clearly in conversation, but for some reason I didn't really quite make that third leap. Um, <laughs> Triple jump. Know. 
Yeah, I, for some, I got real stuck somehow. But yeah, I mean, it's weird because I don't fault Brian nearly enough. Me either. But it's, I think it's because it could be because, like, because we're getting the story from Irene's perspective and all of the yeah. whiny unhingement um, can kind of cloud a large portion of the things that she's telling as true because they right, are, right, they're right, just right. kind of annoying. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And because if we take the like unrequited love of Claire line through, we're getting it skewed through that lens. And so she's more, she's more upset that Claire is fucking someone else than she is that Brian is cheating on her. Right. <laughs> like Which she's not refreshing. fucking Brian either. Yeah. 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 Poor Brian. Um, Really? I don't know. I'm so torn. I like love and hate everyone in this, which is like, I just go back and forth on like who I want to defend. It was Andre Hallett. Like that doesn't help at all because all I see is Moonlight and I like was rooting for him, you know? Yeah. In Moonlight. Yes. So obviously I'm, I'm clouded. Yes. Oh, so good. I know. Moonlight is so so good. Talk about fucking lighting. Shit. Period. Barry. I mean. Barry and not Obama. <laughs> not, the other we, one. Not talking about Obama. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. I'm going to do, this is a super, like, I never do this on the show, but I had a moment of, oh my gosh, is this foreshadowing? Which is like super <laughs> English thought. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, you know, on this show, I like talk about books, but we don't really talk about books like English class. Like we don't talk no. about themes and like we don't talk about like. Nobody um, needs that. Right. But there's this moment in the book and in the movie mm-hmm. where Claire and and Andre, Claire and Brian are flirting. Yeah. And Irene drops the Confederate yes. teapot. Yes, yes, yes. And then Hugh is like, yes! oops, I bumped you. And she's like, no, you didn't. Yeah. I broke this thing that is cherished in our family because it was ugly. And I was like, and in my second reading, I was like, oh, Claire definitely was pushed by Irene. <laughs> like, to me, that was foreshadowing what happened later. Like, no, this is not an accident. Tracy, this you was something I did. this second read. Oh, my God. I was plugged in this second read. Holy I'm moly. You. That's brilliant. What you just but said I, is brilliant. Do you, do you think that I'm right then? Yes. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. The thing is, like, dropped and fallen. Because, you know, I've only read the book once. And when I read that scene the person who took up the most space to me was Hugh because Mm -hmm. he confirmed everything that Irene was feeling. So that like, that's the thing that took up the most space Mm. in that scene. And then when she kept going on and on and on about the, the teapot, I was like, sis, why are you rambling? Right. Right. But I mean, if they are, she's actually in love with Claire and can't take it. And Claire is, and Claire's ruining her life. It would make perfect sense that that's the reason why she pushed her out of the window. And it would be brilliant of Larson to give us a little heads up. I love all of that. Yes. See, I should, I should do this more often. You should do this. Girl, go get, go get prepared and lit. I don't do it more often because I never can see it. This one, for some reason for me, like, just like popped out normally i'm like no i don't know i don't know what a theme is i don't, I don't know <laughs> well the themes are always like an English class would always be like love and i'm like wait what that's the, that's so yeah, obvious the english what? class themes in this book would be like friendship <laughs> jealousy and i went to like a predominantly white school so it would actually never at all be race 
Yeah. Just for the record, we yeah, would never exactly. actually mention that. It would be like attention to detail. <laughs> attention to detail. Exactly. Yeah, that's what would get you an A on the quiz, you guys. Free game to all the high schoolers listening. That's the other thing. I used to always feel like it was like whatever you said was a theme. Like I could just yeah. be like blue and the teacher be like wow wow like kill okay, that cool. period yes yeah, right go off you. sis oh my god sorry, sorry i'm already in college i'm getting a phd <laughs> sorry wish you could do better like me but sorry <laughs> <laughs> um okay so let's talk about the ending what did you what did you think was it a push was it a faint was it a a push from the white man john bell you back on the scene with rage for the nig yeah, you know, I, well, one, I like to think always that when authors leave it ambiguous, that they don't, I always assume that they didn't have a preference to which way it went. Mm-hmm. But um, I talked to um, Robert Jones Jr. about the ending of The Prophets, and he had a clear desire for what ha- would happen, like, mm. for, to the characters going forth. I was like, what? Crazy. So... Given that, I would love to know what Nella was ha- what Nella thought it was. But I really, um, I guess this is the Libra in me that like it doesn't matter. I don't. I didn't even decide whether she was pushed or not because it doesn't matter. Claire has gone to Irene's relief, and Irene has not been accused. Boop! Like that's a Libra yeah. win in my book. So if <laughs> if I'm not accused of pushing her, I did it. Period. Right. Right. So I'm a Leo <laughs> and it was a murder. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh no, my I God. mean, I immediately text three friends upon the first finish, first read. And they were like, what did you think? And I was like, I think a murder occurred. And they were like laughing at me. They were like, are you sure? I'm like, yes. Oh my God. Yeah, I don't. And uh, I don't think it was John Bellew. I don't no, think no, no, no. I, John Bellew didn't even get close. If anybody killed her, it was it was Irene for sure. Oh, I thought Irene in the movie. It was like a gentle sort of backhand, you yep. know, like a little like yeah, scoop to the like side. Sweet, to, yeah, yeah. No, I, it was that, but there was more force. I think. Um, oh. and I think it was intentional. But you know, I understand that there's ambiguity. I understand that you could read it however you want. I myself, as a person who loves drama, I read a murder. There's been a murder on the sixth floor. <laughs> you know what? I guess I do actually believe that Irene killed her. But I like it more that Irene just gets to keep living her life. Yes. Like, yes. she killed her and she gets to move on. Yes. Agreed. Irene is, like, done. Because like, she was just, ba- like, she was just, like, second fiddle to Claire throughout the whole book, like, mm-hmm, character-wise. Mm-hmm. So, sis, this is your time to shine. Like. This is it. Take You've up arrived. space. Attention. Like, it is attention all on Irene. Period. The way she came down. Attention to detail. She came down the (laughs) stairs all slow. Claire died and she's still like, this is my moment. Everybody should be looking for me. Where am I? I'm cold. (laughs) Help me out. Oh my God. Claire died. What are we going to do? Comfort me. This is my friend. I was like, She took over Claire's energy. She's like, I. (laughs) She's like, I want it all. (laughs) It was the scene in Little Mermaid. She made her. She sucked it in. Ah. Yeah. Period. (laughs) I love, I'm here for that. I'm here for that. I need the sequel where Irene just fucking takes Harlem by storm. She takes all of Claire's old dresses, is just like fitted out, gets them hemmed, gets them re Bleaches her hair. 
period. And it's everywhere. Just giving She's like, smiles. who's the blonde bitch now, motherfucker? <laughs> I love it. Yeah, that's what we need. We need to see. She pops we need out some the floor like Lil' Kim. <laughs> we, need to, we need some fan fiction, Tracy. Somebody's got to do it for us. Somebody. Somebody please write Irene. New, oh new city, new life. New, right. We'll take it to Chicago. New Reen in the city. (laughs) (laughs) Reenie's back, bitches. (laughs) Shy town. Oh my god! Yeah, that would be perfect. We've lost it. We fully lost it. This is it's fine. This is a sad ending, and we're like making jokes, and I don't care. Um, Right? It's a showcase. Sad. It's rich people sad, even if they're black. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm trying to think if there's any. Oh, okay. This is the last thing that I have. And then if there's anything else you have, we have to know. So there's this line where I think I don't even know who says it, but they're like, is anyone ever completely free or happy or safe? I think it's Claire. Mm -hmm. And I thought about that a lot because after I finished the book, we talked about Reggie last time. Homie, the homie Reggie, who is, you know, brilliant. A year older. A year older. Happy birthday. Mm -hmm. Um, He... I was messaging with him and he was like, well, who did you think was more free? And then I know Reggie, come on the podcast. Um, and I, I said, I thought Claire was more free, oh. but I don't think that I'm right. <laughs> I, I just um, think that that's what I think. I think Irene's lack of freedom in a lot of ways was like, self-induced like if she wouldn't have been so obsessed with controlling other people's reactions and like basically reactions and decisions um Mm -hmm. I think she would have been happy as hell because at least she didn't have to hide her identity you know Mm. like Claire clearly wasn't that happy because she kept like risking everything to go hang out with the people who made her happy, you know? Right. She definitely wasn't happy. No. Oh, free. Right. Well, that, yeah, same there. She, because then she could have just been able to move in and out without, um, without the fear of her husband finding out. So I think the person who had the greater potential for freedom was Irene. And you're forgetting that Irene was black in the 1920s in America. Oh yeah. I mean, So I feel like a lot of the freedom that Claire had came from being perceived and pretending to be white. I immediately went existential and started thinking about emotional freedom. Like, so like, yeah, she's black in the 1920s, but you have this beautiful community that you can lean on. Um, You have like financially you're comfortable. But your husband is black, black. He ain't passing black. Your kids are black, black. Yeah. And I mean, that's just like, that's just is what it is to me. Like, I don't, I, I feel like since I'm here right now in 2022, there was somebody in my lineage in 20, in 1920, who I hope was living their best life as much as possible, despite the fact that it was 1920 and they were black. So I don't want like all of society's um, absurd rules to be a hindrance to um, Irene be like being emotionally free, you know? Sure. But I don't know that it's just, I, I mean, when I think about, is anyone ever completely free or happy or safe? I don't know that it, to me, it's not just about emotional freedom. Well, no, I mean, but that's what I'm saying. I think that, 
I really do think that emotional freedom supersedes any other type of freedom. So even I don't No, go on. I don't think that I don't think that emotional freedom supersedes freedom, freedom. Like, I don't think that if you're in prison and you're emotionally free, I don't think that supersedes the fact that you're in prison. Well, I think that physical freedom and the ability to do shit and do what you want to do physically with your body and move it in places and be able to make your own decisions is I don't think you can be emotionally free without some sense of physical freedom and independence. I completely I completely disagree only because there are so many people with physical freedom who are so emotionally enslaved that they're afraid to do anything with that. I think you can be wait, I do think you can be physically free and emotionally unfree. And I think that that is possible a thousand percent. But I don't know that you can achieve full emotional freedom if you are physically restrained. What about that moment that Derricka quoted in Becoming Abolitionist when Frederick Douglass decided to fight back? Yeah. I think that what he about had, that? I think that he, he had made a decision in his brain that regardless of how he was treated physically, that emotionally he was never going to be owned anymore. And I think that makes a big difference in people's outlook on life. Sure. But I think he was fighting for that physical freedom. Right. Like that, the, that the goal was to get out of the bondage. But he didn't know if he was going to succeed or not. And I sure. mean, same with Nat Turner. He didn't succeed, but he still sure. made the decision to do it because he wanted to take some of the physical freedom back. But he would have not have been able to have the courage to take back the physical freedom if he hadn't have made the emotional decision first. Right. I'm not saying I'm not saying that you can't have some degree of emotional freedom. I'm saying that I don't think that you can disregard physical freedom from emotional freedom. Like, I think that they are intertwined. And I think that the thing is that with Matt Turner or, or Frederick Douglass or anyone who fights against oppression in that way, who's willing to risk their life for a greater sense of freedom, whatever that is in their case, whether it's slavery, prison, you know police Mm -hmm. brutality, whatever. I think that that decision is because they know they can't have the next, they can't unlock the next level of freedom without the physical aspect of it. And so it's worth dying over. Yeah. But how did this, you said you don't think one is more important than the other. I think that they're connected. I don't, I I think one might be more important than the other for certain people. Like I think each individual might feel, you know, a certain way about, about physical versus emotional freedom. But I think that like they're so deeply intertwined. I just don't know that you can disregard physical freedom. Like, I don't think you can transcend emotional freedom without some sense of physical freedom. I think that that's always there. That the body and space is a thing that cannot be removed from the mind and the soul. But that's just me. Yeah, I don't don't believe that. I think that the mind and soul exists completely separate from the body. I mean, like maybe once, I don't know what I think about what happens after we die, but um, that, I mean, that argument would throw a lot, I mean, turn a lot of religious people on their heads if we didn't think that they could be separate from each other. This is a good place to say that I am um, agnostic and (laughs) really don't. And I was raised Jewish and we don't believe in an afterlife. And so that might be part of where my thinking is doesn't I don't feel stuck by that question at all. 
Yeah, I don't I don't know if I believe in an afterlife, but I do I know that I strongly believe that your thoughts determine what how you experience things. I yes. do I strongly believe that. And so when I'm saying emotional, I'm saying what are you doing internally to manage what you're experiencing externally? And I think that people who do work to internally train their brains to a certain, in a certain direction, experience the world differently, probably with a greater sense of freedom than people who don't and are just reacting. Mm. Sure. Sure. I agree. But here's the thing. Okay. Let's turn it back to the book. Yeah. I don't think that Irene is that. No, no, no. I never thought Irene was that. I think that But you she think had... Irene could have been that potentially if she unlocked some shit. Yeah, if she would have just, if she would have done the work, I just used air quotes around like, why are you so obsessed with controlling other people? Which obviously I don't know how prevalent therapy was in the 1920s. Um, But I do think if she could have been able to unlock that, she would have been able to move around the world with a greater sense of freedom. Whereas because of Claire's value system, if she didn't ha- take time to unpack that and the fact that she was denying such huge parts of herself for this economic upward mobility, I just mm. think that um, she she wasn't even on the same emotional plane to like, like the starting line was so further back from her because of what she was worried about, which I, I think stems from the fact that she grew up poor, you know? So yeah. when like, if you're in survival mode, you're, yep. you don't have yep. time to do the meta shit. Like you're just trying to make sure that your physical is safe. Right. Right. Um, right, right. And so um, I don't I just don't think that she had capacity to do that type of work because she was just trying to survive, which I'm not even mad at. I no. just don't. I just like sure she was physically free because she was white passing. But that doesn't that literally is not interesting to me that people are physically free because they don't ever any, even do anything with their freedom. Sure. But I also feel like I feel like Irene had the greater potential for freedom. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Claire had the greatest freedom within the confines of the story. Like she yeah, was doing yeah. whatever the fuck she wanted. She was passing. She was hanging out with the black folk. She was fucking people's husbands. Like she was free. She was doing what made her happy and what she wanted to do. Yeah. So in the confines of the story, I think that for me, and maybe that's what I was thinking about when I was talking to Reggie, like to me, Claire was the free character. I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And I think what you're saying is like, Irene could have been free in her future life that we've created for her. And I think she's closer to freedom because even as Claire is doing all of that shit, like, isn't she low-key just filling some type of fucking void? Why can't you just sit down and be quiet? You know? It's true. It's so true. that's true. So there's just un- some shit under there that she hasn't worked through. Oh, for sure. I mean, for sure. Because for sure. Irene is more content in her life than than Claire. Well, so until th- Claire comes back. Until Claire comes back. Exactly. So that's why I just think um, Irene has a is is closer to freedom. Sure, but I also think if we throw in the the queer angle. Mm-hmm. Then we, then she, I forget then every she, time. I know, I know. Then she ends up being a lot closer to Claire's level of freedom. That's right? super true. Yes. Because she's hiding this and she's confined by this and she's trying to take up space to get away from this thing, which we all know doesn't yeah, work. Yeah, which is why she's a socialite and blah, 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 blah. That's touche. This was fun. 
This was fun. I know we have to go. This was so fun. Um, Cree, I just fucking adore you. This was awesome. Thank you for being here. People, if you made it to the end and you haven't read the book, I'm so mad at you. <laughs> I know. Like, what are you doing? You should have just paused it and read it. It went to three just hours. Yeah, right. you would have been done. <laughs> um, but I hope everyone enjoyed this. Uh, please feel free to share who you think is the most if you could be free, who's the most free in the book sponsored? By oh, Fergie. I'm excited to hear <laughs> the responses to this question. Yeah, yeah me, me too. too. I'm going to put it when I put up the Instagram post of this episode, I'll also put it there so you can go comment on the Instagram post. But thank you so much, Cree, for being here. Um, and everybody else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you to Cree for being our guest. Our book club pick for February is I Live a Life Like Yours by Jan Grew. The book is all about Jan's experience as a disabled person, his thoughts about stigma, accessibility, and so much more. We will be discussing the book on February 23rd, and you can tune in next week to find out who our guest will be. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. And if you're listening through Spotify, you can now leave us a rating on that platform as well. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Our editor is Christian Duenas. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite. And our theme music comes from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.